Let's talk us about the food system, food and eating as they relate to obesity. The global food system is the most significant upstream contributor to human nutrition in most societies in the world now. And food has never been cheaper nor as plentiful in the past few decades, regardless of the fact that there's been a you know, blip in, in food prices where they've started to increase from about 2008 and become more, uh, more variable, more fluctuating. Um, uh, after the uh, global economic downturn of, of around that time. But food relative to the 1960s and even before that is still cheaper now than, than, uh, than, than ever. Add to this the fact that everyday life has never been more automated. You can see that we have the possibility for, um, the, uh, for obesity that would never have been there before. Dietary change, economic growth and public health practice have helped shift disease patterns in the world from infection and its associations with undernutrition to chronic disease and its associations with overnutrition. Among the cheapest foods available now are those based on agricultural commodities, especially cereals, sugars and edible oils, which are easy to overconsume relative to energy need and which are produced in great quantity by the global food system. While food consumption is controlled and constrained politically, socially, culturally, and also personally, individual feeding constraints control everyone's own appetite, only become important in controlling body weight when there's a plentiful food supply. When there's not enough to eat, obesity as a population phenomenon is unlikely to occur regardless of any genetic or epigenetic predispositions to it. Human dietary change has been well investigated from the transition to agriculture to more recent times with modernization and with globalization. Modernization and the globalization of food supply have affected the eating patterns of populations almost everywhere. Globalization of food has also disrupted, to varying degree, local, cultural and social mechanisms for restraint in food intake contributing to the rise in obesity rates in many countries. So in places where, you know, structured meal patterns uh, regulated how people eat, uh, the introduction of, 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 of patterns of, of snacking and eating um, more or less opportunistically sort of threatened some of those, uh, some of those restraints, those social and cultural restraints. The global food system is an expert system. Um, one that is complex, has many components, and nobody really understands it. It's also interactive, and it's overwhelmingly shaped by large transnational corporations. The economic turnover generated by the production, processing, marketing, and sale of food is the largest of all industrial sectors in the world. When we look at the turnover of the top 21% global food retail companies, um, they're all in the top 30 companies for all retail categories combined, and they represent in excess of 20% of all retail in the world overall. So as a category for, um, uh, for economic activity, it is huge. <clears throat> the food retailers that have greatest overseas penetration are French and German, while most United States companies um, companies in the United States have low overseas country, pen, uh, overseas country penetration. <coughs> so companies that are, you know, um, that are, uh, um, perform overseas are, you know, have, have, have large uh, 
influence on the global food system. So, for example, the United States, the one company that uh, um, has the highest penetration of all the world's food retailers, is more Walmart. And the extent to which um, the food system of a nation is integrated into the global food market is partly these corporations, but also depends heavily on history, tradition, um, the changeability or resilience of existing local and national food systems, as well as political forces. Local and national food systems often have great time depth as well as being extremely adaptable. More generally in the world, food is often framed as a consumerist issue and it's often easier to focus on individual level factors and place responsibility for obesity on this, as most policy responses have for decades. The current logic of individualism in obesity prevention and treatment in the United Kingdom, the United States and Australia, for example, is consumerist perhaps because the global food system, among other commercially dominated systems, relies on consumption to drive economic demand. So large corporations um, ensuring, in large part, food security, ensuring the availability of cheap food calories, <coughs> is also a significant part of the uh, global economic system that needs consumption to drive its demand. When we turn now to the individual um, this is another issue altogether. The physiological models that regulate appetite and food intake are complex at this level. Eating is something we do every day. We don't think about its complexity. We don't need to because it's all internalized, luckily for us. But when we eat, the driving principle that drives our appetite, and also the production of obesity, is that of palatability, food tastes nice, of satiation, the physiological cues to terminate eating, and satiety, the feeling of fullness that often develops after eating, which is gained from foods. And these relationships, palatability, satiation, satiety, um, is inversely related to the energy density of foods. So, the overconsumption of fat and sugar, both macronutrient commodities that have increased in availability in recent decades, have been implicated in the production of obesity. At the global level, per capita availability of fat has increased by 80% between 1961 and 2011, and across the same period by 20%. So, across something like a 50-year period, um, People eat so much more fat and much more sugar than they have in, in the past. The desire to eat sugar by individuals is reinforced behaviorally and physiologically because it induces pleasure through, among other mechanisms, the neuronal release of opioids. Um, the neuronal re re release of opioids is associated with other pleasure mechanisms, so it's not isolated. It's actually a very important system that, that, uh, uh, that, that's used in all kinds of different ways. Fat isn't pleasant to eat on its own. We know that. Who's going to eat a pound of butter and find it pleasurable? Who's going to eat a pound of lard and find it pleasurable? Um, but fat is a taste stimulus. It doesn't vary according to mood. And the response to it, the pleasure response to it, is um, greatly enhanced in complex food combinations. 
especially in relation to sugar. So adding even small amounts of sugar to fat makes it uh, very pleasurable. And we're surrounded in the Western countries by fat-sugar combinations. Chocolate is probably one of the most important of them, most prevalent of them. And uh, who would deny anybody the right to eat chocolate? But chocolate is ultimately just a combination of fat and sugar, with a few other things, of course, added. The human dietary preference for fat is deep-set. Since the availability of energy-dense foods rich in fat facilitated the evolution of increased hominin brain size. So evolutionarily, without a desire for fat consumption, uh, we wouldn't have been able to capture enough dietary energy for us to evolve large brains. It's easy to overconsume fat, basically. less easy to do so for sugar, except when the two are combined. And the combination of sweet, high-fat foods in the diet has greater potential for individual weight gain than any other macronutrient combination. And we're surrounded by these things. Go around a shop or a supermarket and just see how much of it is there. It's huge. People usually need to consume high energy density foods across long periods of time to become obese. That's because the extent of energy imbalance in the production of individual obesity is less than 1% of total daily energy intake. So this slight overconsumption can happen easily, especially when consuming foods that are high in fat and or sugar. Overeating on fat and sugar relative to dietary energy need is easy, partly because these two substances elicit minimal satiation and satiety. They don't make us full. We can overeat on them, overshoot our energy requirements very easily, and we can overeat on them uh, for pleasure. Turning back to the global food system, this is considerable history, and I'm going to turn to um, examine how it's emerged from individually complex food systems with increasing globalization. I'm also going to look at how the global food system structures local food availabilities, and how complexity of human appetite and the ideology of individualism in present-day neoliberal societies work to co-produce obesity. As human evolution-based preferences for energy-dense palatable foods are exploited by food manufacturers and retailers. So to turn to the structuring of food systems. These are comprised of the totalities of processes and infrastructures involved in food production and consumption, including the growing, harvesting, processing, packaging, transporting, marketing, preparation, consumption, and the disposal of food waste and food-related waste. These systems have undergone many transformations across prehistory and history. With increased population connectedness, technological development and trade, they've globalized and increased in complexity. The global food system is underpinned by the global food regime, and this is the international rule-governed structure of food production and consumption. It integrates many different types of technology and their regulation at many levels, including taxation, operations and practices. So the global food regime are the rules and regulations that determine the safety, the transmission, the, the, the transportation and so on. Make sure that food gets from one place to another, it's grown properly and doesn't hazard health. The global food system and the global food regime 
frame the food choices that people may have in everyday life. While there are very many local variants of diet and of dietary tradition, the global food regime structures the upstream availability of different foods and their relative costs. Prices play a big part in food choice almost everywhere, and it's often more important an influence on what's eaten than tradition, especially among poorer people. As well as being the key evolutionary transformation in the history of humanity, the origin of agriculture had broad-reaching effects on human diet, and this represents the earliest systematization of food, one that underpins all present-day food systems. Starting from around 10,000 years ago, varying according to location, radical economic, societal and technological change saw agriculture become the dominant mode of provisioning for the majority of the world's populations. With this came the dominance of grains and other carbohydrate-rich foods in most human diets. Different grain cultures emerged in different global regions. Maize in Mexico, rice in China, wheat and barley in the Middle East. The ability to produce surpluses of grain set the conditions for the development of religion, government and social and economic inequality and the formation and growth of institutions that now govern food systems to the present day. The emergence of agriculture as an economic system led to the spatial concentration of homogeneous resources and an intensification of food production and of storage and technological development. The cultural complexity of agricultural food systems displaced the ecological complexity of hunter-gatherer food systems. So, hunter-gatherer food systems are extraordinarily complex in the number of different species they use. Agricultural food systems use far fewer species, but just the complexity of production is so much, so much different. So, food has always been complex. It's just how complex and the ways in which it's complex changed and continue to change. The emergence after the origins of Mesopotamia between nine and seven thousand years ago further intensified local food production and increased the complexity of local food systems that service their populations. Such early cities were hotbeds of technological and societal innovation and required food systems that could generate significant surpluses to feed their populations. The subsequent growth of cities would have required increasingly complex control of the food supplies and would have led to food systems becoming overtly political. Early agricultural and political control of food supply were major factors in the early rise of Chinese civilization, for example, between four and a half and three and a half thousand years ago, more or less. Control of food supply has increased in complexity across millennia to the point where it now contributes to obesity. The early expansion of cultural complex food systems across Eurasia was advanced through trade and transport. Contemporary China has three staple crops, rice, millet and wheat, of which only the former two are indigenous to China. Wheat was an established crop in the Middle East by about 10,000 years ago, and was introduced into regions where millet was already well established as a dominant crop from around 4,000 years ago, and it gradually expanded in importance across Eurasia. The introduction of wheat to China and the diversification of agriculture that there was coincident with the introduction of metallurgy and domestication of several species of animals. 
Wheat agriculture in China predated uh, the trade between West and East Asia by about 2,000 years, when the Silk Road was established. The Silk Road traded in goods, and it facilitated the expansion and interconnection of local food systems across Europe and Asia. Ideas and people moved along what was a network of trade routes, involving by around 2,000 years ago, present-day China, India, Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia, the Central Asian countries of Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Syria and Turkey, as well as penetrating all the way to Portugal and as far as Sweden. While most foods cannot travel easily long distance in bulk, ideas associated with growing new types of crop and herding different types of animals could uh, move long distance. The Silk Road played a large part in the growth of the civilizations of China, India, Persia, Mesopotamia, Egypt and Rome, and through trade, speeded the interconnection of Asia and Europe. As people, cities, politics and economics became interconnected, so did food systems. This continued with the rise and fall of many empires. The Roman Empire, the Gupta Empire, the Byzantine, the Bulgar, um, the Ottoman, the Serbian, the Mughal, among them. Empires put in place political systems and bureaucracies that more or less unified territories and permitted the flow of goods, including the flow of food goods within their boundaries. As you can see, the food systems developed in different places have steadily become more and more connected across time. And already the connection across most of the world, barring the Americas, had, had happened with the, the, the connection around 2,000 years ago with the Silk Road. More than a 1,000 years later, a number of these empires were to interact with modern European colonial powers, which included Spain, Portugal, Holland, Britain, Russia and France. And these extended the links between the food systems of earlier empires and colonizing nations. The European colonial nations went on to link Eurasian food systems with those of the African and American continents and led to develop the first global trade in food. From the 16th century, food became increasingly commoditized and traded in large scale. By the 17th century, globalization saw cosmopolitan diets emerge in all places affected by colonialism, among both the colonizer and the colonized. The effects of this process persist to the present day. I'm going to show now with the case of Mexico and its neighbor state, the United States. <coughs> so, globalization food, in the case of Mexico... Urbanization and agriculture emerged in Mexico between seven and 9,000 years ago with maize as its dominant stable. As its dominant staple. Many city-states had emerged and grown with the Valley of Mexico by the 13th century with diverse food systems that incorporated mixed farming and animal husbandry underpinned by the dominant cereal crop, maize. The Spanish conquests of Mexico between 1519 and 1521 and of the Americas more generally, um, led to the entry of new world plants like tomato, capsicum and potato into European diets, and of European cereal crops such as wheat and of livestock such as cattle and sheep into American diets. The Spanish introduced European systems of agriculture along with new plants and animals, including cattle, poultry and pigs, wheat and rice, which competed for land and labour with native foods. 
Haciendas, or large estates, were granted to Spanish settlers and institutions, including the Catholic Church in Mexico, from 1529 onwards. These were usually plantations or large farms, which intensified the use of smaller number of crops and animals for food. The colonial imposition of the hacienda system marginalized indigenous populations and promoted the welfare of the Spanish colonizers, creating intense social stratification in rural areas. The dietary consequences of this new type of inequality were immense. The wealthy recreated the gastronomy of Spain in the New World based on both local and introduced ingredients. European styles of food manufacture were also introduced, and from the 17th century, cheese and sausage became part of the Mexican diet. For the upper classes of colonial Mexico, the fusion of local and introduced foods prepared within the structure of high European cuisine became the norm and formed the basis of present-day Mexican cuisine. The poor, however, reliant on wage labor from hacienda management, uh, from hacienda managers for subsistence, struggled to sustain themselves on diets consisting overwhelmingly of maize and beans. Similar events took place across the world across the same period. Mercantile trade among the colonies, Spanish, Dutch, British, French, Belgian, American, Russian, created a global food system that linked the food security of the colonial nations and especially the new mercantile middle classes within them, with that of the colonizers. In the 20th century, the Mexican food system continued to be shaped by the early colonial geography of social and economic stratification and of the commoditization of agriculture, but was increasingly exposed to foods from the increasingly economically and scientifically dominating, uh, dominant United States. <clears throat> In the second half of the 20th century, the ideology of modernization, open food policy, and the penetration of heavily advertised transnational food products led to a devaluation of traditional cooking in Mexico. This encouraged poorer Mexicans to incorporate energy-dense foods rich in fats and refined carbohydrates into their diets as the cheapest source of calories. In recent decades, agricultural decline in Mexico has taken place as food policy has facilitated increased imports from the United States and elsewhere, with now more than 90% of food imports to Mexico coming from the United States. The recent supermarketization of Mexico, much of it under the control of a smaller number of transnational corporations, has helped this process along. Supermarkets have done this in many different places. They open local food systems to global food systems very dramatically. <clears throat> in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America, the expansion of retail through supermarkets and large-scale food manufacture has deeply transformed the markets for food, both local and imported. Food consumed in Mexico has become increasingly energy-dense, containing high proportions of fat and cereal-based refined carbohydrates, overwhelmingly as imports from the United States. The most recent dietary trend in Mexico has been the rise of consumption of caloric beverages, including soft drinks, sweetened tea and coffee, sweetened juice and fruit juice drinks. By 2012, the daily per capita energy intake from sugar-sweetened beverages in Mexico was the second highest in the world, after Chile, but slightly ahead of the United States. Together with the increased mechanization of everyday life, 
dietary change has left Mexico with a burden of obesity that is now comparable to the United States. Mexico now experiences disproportionate exposure to the U.S. food system and its governance, which sets norms for a food regime that is almost universally obesogenic. In an attempt to regulate exceedingly high obesity rates, the Mexican government put in place a policy that imposed an excise tax on sugar-sweetened beverages in 2014. This we know has resulted in a 6% reduction in volume of sugar-sweetened beverages purchased during the first year of this tax. Um, a decline in consumption was highest in households with lower socioeconomic status. Both U.S. food policy and the U.S. food system now largely shape the global food system. But the latter, the United States food system, emerged and developed from the interaction of a political, particular historical, political and economic set of circumstances. So turning now to the globalization, uh, globalization and the United States food system, um, we can now look at what happened there. It's important because the U.S. food system is a system that dominates the, the global food system. Mass food production was an early aspiration of the United States in the 1800s, with the agricultural settlement of European migrants across its land mass, displacing Native American food systems. The United States equivalent of the Silk Road was the railroad which from the mid-19th century accelerated trade and the movement of commodities, especially of food, from the Midwest to the rapidly expanding industrializing cities. Developments in agricultural technology and transport brought new ways of food production, processing, distribution, and delivery to its consumers, including the industrialization of many aspects of the food system. This industrialization included the development of new food technologies that made both food safe and free from contamination, and which was used to create new food products and food categories. Such new food categories we now take for granted as being part of everyday life. Cornflakes, breakfast cereals. Goodness me, is there a household that doesn't have this, this food category? The food industry that emerged was engaged in the technological transformation of Midwestern agriculture into part or wholly processed food products for consumption overwhelmingly in the urban United States, but also internationally. By the late 1800s, cheap food from the United States was undermining food economies in Europe, as well as shaping urban diets in Mexico and elsewhere. Across the 20th century, Increasing standards of living and higher discretionary incomes in Europe, North America and Australia led to changing patterns of food demand and global food trade, which allowed the possibility of selling foods for which there was little or no prior domestic demand. Of course, cornflakes come to mind immediately. So, this included the creation of a market for breakfast cereals. Initially, of course, cornflakes in, in, um, uh, in uh, 1895 the sale of mutton flaps from New Zealand to Pacific Island nations, the trade in chicken, white chicken meat to western markets, red chicken meat to eastern ones. So new markets for new foods. And this is something that continues at a, in, an incredible rate in the present day. Globalization in the late 20th century saw the spread of the dietary cosmopolitanism of fast foods and convenience foods. This was and continues to be underpinned by the subsidy of specific agricultural commodities, 
including wheat, maize, and soy, especially by the United States government. The fall in food prices between 1980 and the year 2000, in the year 2000 largely in response to overproduction stim stimulated by agricultural subsidies in the United States, helped the spread of fast food made from subsidized agricultural commodities, as well as contributing to obesity rates in high-income countries more generally. According to Caroline Frank and her colleagues at McGill University in Montreal, while the first agricultural assistance programs in the U.S. were implemented in the 1920s to address the overproduction of commodities resulting from World War I surplus effort, support efforts, attempts to stabilize prices resulting from overproduction by introducing grain to open markets paradoxically encouraged farmers to grow even more. This trend continued well after World War II, when industrialization and specialization gave rise to increasingly large companies, traders, manufacturers and processors whose competitive interest was rooted in oversupply. By promoting quantity of production and sale, the US food system facilitated the emergence and growth of obesity across the second half of the 20th century within its own borders and in many of the nations that it trades with, especially of Mexico. Now I want to turn to the elaboration of food systems. How they've changed. The second half of the, the 20th story, very much a story of, of uh, the modernization of the food system. So since the 1990s, increased gross domestic product per capita in most nations, increased individual wealth, has allowed the expansion of more diverse markets for foods and food products. There's been increased expression of status through material goods, including food. Changing occupational structure in the United States, less laboring work, more clerical and office-based work, the continued rise of both secular society and of consumerism after World War II have favored consumption, including that of food, increasingly to serve the reproduction of social class. In recent years, the increased valorization of foods on the basis of both authenticity and exoticism has helped resolve a tension in the United States between the inclusionary ideology of democratic cultural consumption, as for example, going to the ball game and eating a hot dog, and an exclusionary ideology of taste and distinction, such as dining out on French cuisine, for example, among those of high socioeconomic status. Globally, there's been an extensive consolidation of science-supported food production, processing, marketing, and retail, creating a complex food system that responds to and creates markets for novelty and status. As part of this process, a number of extremely palatable products, high in sugar and or energy density, have become brand icons. These pander to individual taste preferences for sweetness and sensory stimulation, but need persistent marketing to uphold their status. The retail of food in the second half of the 20th century has increasingly involved branding with many variants of similar foods competing for the attention of consumers. A brand, it's a set of associations that people make with a company or product and usually not the product itself. Let's take the example of a well-known brand of um, cola. While the material costs of making it are small, 
They involve primarily carbonation of water, adding some sugar and or high fructose corn syrup to that water. Its brand value and its status lies with typical perceptions of it, that it's the original cola drink. Its recipe is secret and unsurpassed. It represents all things American, increasingly all things global, that it's youthful and it's energetic. Visual perceptions are key to its brand value and include the un unmistakable logo, its corporate colors, and the unique shape and tint of the original glass bottles. This particular company in, in the 2010s was the largest buyer of sugar in the world, the biggest global brand of drink and the most bought fast-moving consumer good. The power of this brand in conferring status upon its consumers is so high that it's not affected by strong evidence that links the consumption of, high sugar, of sugar and high fructose corn syrup sweetened drinks to obesity and type 2 diabetes and of dietary availability of high fructose corn syrup with type 2 diabetes. Coca-Cola and other similar brand icons have helped spread the consumption of sugar throughout the world because of the power of brands and not just because of the human desire to eat sweet things. Anthropologist Sidney Bintz, Mintz um, has argued that the rapid incorporation of sugar into the English diet in the 19th century reflected much more than the human dietary preference for sweetness. Sugar was implicated in slave labor and co colonial domination, in industrialization and urbanization, and was, according to Sidney Mintz, not merely a bearer of sweetness, but a profoundly social substance. Sidney Mintz wrote his landmark book, Sweetness and Power, in the 1980s. In the time since 1985, since this book was written, the social in sugar has, with the help of the Coca-Cola Corporation, other corporations like it, extended with globalization. Sugar-sweetened beverages are centrally placed consumer items in the present era of global food corporations, mass consumption, and the near ubiquity of food marketing. Choice and individualism are linked in the production of social status through consumption, and the global food system has accelerated the pace at which no new food products are generated, dramatically changing what people can eat. Because food products are placed in competitive marketplaces with most in most countries, they must maximize some combination of novelty, status, price, and palatability to ensure their economic success. The cheapest raw ingredients are overwhelmingly cereal-based commodities and fats, and it's not surprising that the majority of food products on the market carry some palatable combination of these ingredients. Where palatability leads, increased consumption follows. The creation of highly palatable, high-fat and or high-sugar food products by transnational corporations had profound effects on human food consumption patterns, as well as creating ambivalence about eating and facilitating disordered eating among many people. Human appetites are evolutionarily rational, and there's no surprise that such appetites are large. Constraints to the desire for sweetness are few especially in individualist societies. No holding back people desire for sweetness in societies that encourage individualism. I want to turn now to individualism as it relates to human appetite in the co-production of obesity. 
What is individualism? Within a form, as a as a, as a form of thought within political philosophy, it has a deep history. Individualist societies are those in which people work to further their own interests without taking broader interests into consideration. Individualists are chiefly concerned about protecting individual autonomy against obligations imposed by social institutions, such as the state or religious institutions, for example. Individualism and self-governmentality are easier among those with greater control of their own lives, but more difficult when the physical, mental and, uh, and mental resources for self-control are fewer, as among the poorer members of high-income countries. From the late 2000s, individualism has been wed to the, ideal, the ideology of neoliberalism, a reassertion of liberal economic beliefs of the 19th century. And this neoliberalism rose quickly in the 1980s under the legislations of Margaret Thatcher in the UK and of Ronald Reagan in the United States. The neoliberal turn in the United Kingdom changed workplace policy with respect to equality and diversity um, and changed policy with respect to public health approaches to illness and with respect to politics more generally. <coughs> the growth of consumerism that came with both neoliberalism and increased individualism helped create new, more fluid notions of society which, which hollowed out the shared public domain, transcended territorial boundaries and eroded often solid identities based in work and locality. In the United States, commercialism and consumerism has grown at the expense of political participation and at the expense of shrinking civil society, and it's also helped to fragment social life. Along with cheap, energy-dense food, the rise of neoliberalism and individualism across most societies set the conditions for the dramatic increases in obesity rates seen from around that time. Individualism is linked to the production of obesity via the reduced need for people to recruit psychological feedback on personal actions and behavior. That is, uh, I want to eat this snack now, but, uh, and there's nobody stopping me, but if I were in Japan, I want to eat the snack on the street, well, people might frown on me for eating in public, that kind of thing. So, the psychological feedback on personal actions and behavior reduces checks and balances on potentially socially unacceptable behavior. Eating patterns have long been recognized as being linked to obesity, and in the absence of socially calibrating checks and balances, cheap, palatable, energy-dense food can be easily overconsumed for a range of reasons, for stress alleviation, for pleasure, for both of these things. In the absence of other forms of emotional support, Consumption of cheap, energy-dense food can also provide comfort. Comfort eating usually involves the consumption of energy-dense foods in large amounts to reduce negative emotions such as anger, loneliness, boredom, and depression. Energy-dense food will do this job of, comfort, of providing comfort. There are very few people, if any, that, that practice comfort eating through something like broccoli. Um, energy is, is fundamental to, to alleviating um, psychological stress. Eating high-fat diets also reduces sensitivity to stress, as well as reducing stress itself. 
although there are withdrawal symptoms associated with reducing, with reducing fat intake, which result in elevated stress and increasing desire to return to a high-fat diet. There are elements of addictiveness also to consuming these kinds of foods. In societies promoting individualist values, the regulation of obesity is often synonymous with individual self-control. And models for obesity regulation overwhelmingly focus on responsabilization and self-management, for eating healthily, maintaining healthy body weight, and undertaking adequate physical activity. Where self-management is difficult or impossible, as among young children, for example, there's considerable responsabilization of parents and schools for the prevention and reduction of childhood obesity. The extent to which children can be morally responsible agents is limited, however, and it's usually left to schools and teachers to provide moral guidance when and where parents are generally not able to set constraints and consistent standards and expectations for their children. In public health terms, schools are institutionalized risk environments where young people are most exposed to government strategies, including those of obesity prevention. Models of obesity regulation in the age of individualism are made complicated by social inequality. It's been argued in the United Kingdom that individualism has fragmented social class distinctions. Government policy towards inequality during the UK Labour administration of 1997 to 2010 encouraged such fragmentation by focusing heavily on parenting as a means of encouraging children to become individualised agentic selves rather than as class-based social selves. This favoured the soft individualism of upper-middle-class communities above the hard individualism of working-class communities. With respect to childhood, hard individualism encourages children to be tough enough to handle obstacles, while soft individualism encourages them to realise and express their full potential in the broader world. Parents of lower socioeconomic status more often practice authoritarian rather than authoritative parenting and often lack the skills to practice soft individualism, leave alone to have the desire or ability to teach it to their children. Many types of advertising and branding target soft individualism. This is particularly true for the marketing of high-fat, high-sugar food products. According to Amy McLennan and colleagues at the University of Oxford, consumption of specific brands has become a major form of meaning-making in the lives of people in high-income countries, certainly since the 1970s. Soft individualism, with the capital resources to support it, as among the established middle classes, may be better able to resist marketing and branding than is soft individualism without these resources. For example, in an, anal an analysis of adolescent consumer behaviour in the United States, middle class adolescents are better able to manage consumer finances, filter advertising, and have stronger motivations for consumption than their lower class counterparts. In the Labour-administered United Kingdom of 1997-2010, to 2010, state support for the development of soft individualism in families of low socioeconomic status used discourses of social exclusion in which parents were framed as lacking in personal skills and moral responsibility destined to transfer disadvantage to their children in cycles of deprivation. The answer to this was to impose middle-class values at all points of contact with the state be it social services, health centres or schools. 
The imposition of soft individualism on children of low socioeconomic status, coupled with their higher susceptibility to branding and advertising, and the greater symbolic value of fast foods to them, may have helped the demand for obesogenic foods among poorer people in the UK. Not what was intended. The ideologies of individualism, in which people of higher socioeconomic status are more able to self-regulate than those of lower socioeconomic status, are central to models of food consumption. The biological drives of feeding, hunger, and the dietary regulation of macronutrient intake involve shared physiological and behavioral bases with other animals, and they are evolutionary based. Humans and other animals can easily overeat and deposit body fat when presented with diets that are plentiful, palatable, and or high in fat. For humans, both variety at a meal and palatability play to powerful behavioural responses to food cues, as does the way in which food is consumed across the day. Social regulation of eating is less powerful in individualist societies, where the need for people to check their personal actions and behaviours is less. In countries that place great emphasis on maintaining a strong meal structure, there's less snacking, which limits energy intake both socially and culturally. In contrast, the highly individualist United States has seen increased energy intakes from snacking among children and adolescents, while energy intakes from meals have remained constant. Responsibilized consumer citizenship places the task of resisting palatable, high-energy-dense foods on the individual. Neoliberal systems and ideology form the discursive basis for many public health interventions which assume that individuals make rationally good food choices once educated about the health implications of consuming obesogenic diets and foods. Such assumptions have been robustly critiqued by Julie Gutman and others, leaving open the question that uh, the idea that weight management should be left to the individual and obesity control to individualism. While individual appetite control is frequently promoted as a rational way of controlling body weight, it doesn't come naturally to most people. Across human evolutionary time, uncertain and unstable environments would have made food security precarious at times, and being able to eat plentifully of energy-dense foods when available would have favoured survivorship and, by extension, reproductive success. This would have been helped by heightened responses to visual cues associated with food of high pleasure value when hungry. Humans are predisposed to consume energy-dense, palatable foods quickly as an evolutionary-based adaptation to food uncertainty. This evolutionary predisposition is a neurophysiological one and has been retained in late modern times where, in high-income countries, food uncertainty no longer exists and obesity rates are high and rising in most places. Food intake and energy expenditure are controlled by complex, redundant and distributed neural systems that reflect the fundamental biological importance of adequate nutrient supply and energy balance, and the predisposition of humans to develop obesity theoretically result from any pathological malfunction or lack of adaptation to changing ecologies in the system. Neural feed-forward mechanisms in the brain that produce anticipatory responses to food cues such as sight, smell, and even the discussion of particular foods dominate in such situations where cues such cues are plentiful, 
where the food is easy, such food is easily available because of low cost and low amount of effort required to get it, where such food is palatable, energy dense, and its consumption is socially enhanced. The predisposition to develop obesity may also be a species norm. The highly complex system of appetite regulation may not be able to adapt to the changed food ecology of present day, where cheap, energy-dense food products are easily generated by the global food system. While appetite regulation may not be able to adapt to such ecological changes, the gut microbiota that we all carry do, but not necessarily in ways that mitigate against obesity. We all have gut microbiota, these are the, the bugs in our gut that um, generally help us live healthy lives. Modern industrial diets change the selection pressures on gut microbiota ecology and altered exposures of infants to bacteria, mostly through food during early life, may contribute to the subsequent development of obesity. Gut microbiota can aid in nutrition, resist pathogens and promote human adaptive immunity. Is inherited from their mother, and there is a core microbiome ecology that most people in the community share. In high-income countries, deviation from the community microbiome ecology are often associated with obesity, and obesity in turn affects gut, gut microbiotic ecology. Individualism may thus influence the likelihood of developing obesity right down to the level of gut microbiota ecology. That is, individualism makes us internalize um, the very mechanisms that result in, uh, result in obesity production. Turning now to consumption and regulation in obesity. Behaviors associated with the causes of obesity, eating more dietary energy than is expended over prolonged periods, involve a range of potential rewards, including pleasure, distraction, relief from stress and anxiety, and these can ultimately lead to obesity. Such behaviours can be seen as being both evolutionarily and psychologically rational. But models for the regulation of obesity are more likely to call on, a pe on people being um, economically rational actors. So when governments want to regulate obesity in a population, in a nation, they're calling on the economic rationality of every individual. <clears throat> However, self-control of appetites and impulses is easier among people who already have a great deal of control over their lives anyway. And it's little surprise that individualist advice towards economically rational action is more easily enacted among those of higher socioeconomic status. In high-income countries, obesity is usually highest among those of lowest socioeconomic status, where psychological and evolutionary rationality is predisposed to overeating. Without social and environmental checks, enactment of these rationalities allows obesity to flourish. Many of the ecological factors that are seen as having contributed to obesity across recent decades involve consumption, not only of high-energy-dense foods and drinks, but of other goods and services. This includes the consumption of motor cars, personal computers, and of electronic devices, all of which facilitate increased convenience and physical inactivity. Consumption has been fostered by neoliberal approaches in politics since the early 1980s, which have also promoted ideologies of soft individualism. 
Under the administration of Margaret Thatcher, the key political unit of the United Kingdom became the individual and no longer society. UK governments of all ideologies have framed policies overwhelmingly around the construct of the individual consumer as the target for regulation. This formulation of consumer citizenship obliges individuals to be not merely free to choose, but to be obliged to be free and to understand and enact their lives in terms of choice. The conflict embedded in this idea is that political theory defines citizens, citizens as being willing to serve the common good, while consumers are defined by their individualistic, pleasure-seeking characteristics. Consumption and citizenship therefore often pull in different directions, perhaps nowhere more than in obesity governance. Obesity is overwhelmingly represented in the UK by the media, uh, medical establishment and the government as an issue for personal responsibility and control, while government policy encourages good citizenship through consumption. For people, bounded and substantive rationalities concerning consumption, the body and citizenship is in constant internal negotiation open to scrutiny by other people and institutions. This creates stress and anxiety which can recruit overeating relative to bi biological need as an, as an alleviation response, especially when energy-dense food is cheap. In most high-income countries, food cues are abundantly present in obesogenic environments and in everyday life, and are easy to respond to in the context of the stresses and psychological insecurities of everyday life. Putting on weight is a natural response to insecurity. It's only in recent decades, with improved food security in industrialized nations and the emergence of obesity in the population, that overeating has become maladaptive in terms of health outcomes and has become pathologized. Overeating relative to immediate energetic need is a response to insecurity with deep evolutionary roots. High reactivity to external cues such as colour, taste and smell, and subsequent disinhibited eating under conditions of food scarcity and or high levels of competition would have favoured survivorship for most people and populations until fairly, fairly recent times. Human impulsivity in relation to food is both psychologically and evolutionarily rational in that such rationalities underpin human decision-making, which may be short-term, situational, and related to pleasure, sociality, and distraction. Binge-eating may be a physiological feeding adapt adaptation to food uncertainty, which can take place in the absence of a hunger stimulus from the gut, especially when highly palatable foods offer pleasure. Food consumption under such conditions has been termed hedonic hunger. Binge eating usually involves highly palatable, energy-rich foods, typically high in fats, sugars, or both of these, and might reflect the evolutionarily rational drive for immediate rewards in uncertain circumstances. Hedonic hunger is likely to have an evolutionary basis, and this mechanism has been deliberately hijacked by food corporations whose business is to trade in highly palatable, energy-dense foods. Checks and balances, however, to overeating include the many social conventions that surround food and its consumption in all societies. These mediate the physiological drive to eat, whether for, for hunger, pleasure, or for both of these. Social and cultural mediators of eating are quite easily overridden, however, especially for the individual.
different societies. Eating while listening to the radio or watching television or eating in the presence of friends and family increases the amount consumed. Both sets of circumstances allow diversion of attention from food consumption, resulting in reduced self-monitoring of intake, allowing food consumption beyond immediate needs. Engaging in other tasks, such as working at the computer, also reduces self-monitoring of intake. <coughs> Individualism, modern life, and cheap palatable foods make disordered, reg dysregulated, distracted eating easy to practice. Regulating against overconsumption of food is extraordinarily difficult at a time when social and cultural checks and balances have been eroded in many societies, and when consumerism more broadly is celebrated. Policy that calls upon people to take responsibility for their health through their eating actions is appealing, amounts to minimal political intervention, but it has limited impact on obesity rates. Alternatively, the regulation of food systems by governments involves many competing interests and is politically difficult but is more likely to be effective. There are several competing interests and rationalities in regulating complex food systems. Governments seek to have a healthy and economically productive population, food corporations seek profit, and citizens often respond to policies and market forces individualistically. The food corporations are part of an expert system that no single agency controls, but many of them have financial turnovers that exceed those of many nations and therefore carry economic power to the extent that individual governments may not be able to regulate them. Economic rationality is paramount for food corporations, their prime function being profitability. In meeting this aim, the processes of food production, transportation, processing, distribution and sale have been increasingly streamlined and increasingly focused on the production of foods that are highly profitable, which are mostly those that can contribute to obesity, high energy dense foods. Corporations make more profit if people eat more, and economic rationality in food production does not have to square with optimal nutritional health. In the United Kingdom, government policy introduced voluntary codes for self-regulation of food corporations in 2013 with a food network responsibility deal. While it ostensibly places responsibility on the food industry to drive change, in practice, consumers are framed as being ultimately responsible for their own consumption behaviours. The ideology of individualism and the rhetoric of choice is embedded in this and other food-related industry-led voluntary codes, as economic rationality is placed centrally to all policy in neoliberal society. The stresses of everyday life in high-income countries are quite different to those experienced in the human evolutionary past, but the mechanisms for dealing with it are much the same. Overeating is often a personal response to chronic life stress, such as stresses created by neoliberalism, especially in countries such as the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, where individual insecurity can cut across social gradients. The amelioration of stress and anxiety through comfort eating helps drive up obesity rates in such countries. Work-related insecurity, including low income, poor job mobility and absence of union protection, all of which have increased under neoliberalism, raise the likelihood of ongoing stress and illness. Responses to stress, in turn, include overeating and consumption of highly energy-dense foods, both of which are implicated in the production of obesity. 
The globalization of neoliberal values has been associated with increasing obesity rates in the world, largely as a consequence of the spread of modernity and the formerly rational systems of food production and delivery. Expert systems such as those that secure global infrastructure and food operate as ecologies and are often too big and complex to be managed by individual governments. Many of the previously keystone functions of state have been handed over to corporate interests in recent times, especially where such functions are served by expert systems. Think about the food system, think about health systems and the debate about privatizing them. Corporate responsibility is secondarily social and primarily economically rational and answerable to shareholders. This is unlike state responsibility, in which any democratic government is answerable to the population that elected it. This has deep implications for the production of obesity into the future. Thank you.